Douglas is, by his example and vast influence, doing the very thing in this community when he says that the Negro has nothing in the Declaration of Independence. Henry Clay plainly understood the contrary. Judge Douglas, in going back to the era of our revolution and to the extent of his abilities, muzzling the cannon which thunders its annual joyous return, when he invites any people willing to have slavery to establish it, he is blowing out the moral lights around us. When he says he does not care whether slavery is voted down or voted up, that is a sacred right of self-government. He is, in my judgment, penetrating the human soul and eradicating the light of reason and the love of liberty in the American people. Well, welcome to the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. That uh, introductory quote was from the first Lincoln-Douglas debates from the end of Lincoln's speech, um, where he makes uh, what I think is maybe one of the most important um, issues at stake in the in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and that's really the Constitution versus the Declaration of Independence, and which should have dominance in how we kind of craft policy about an issue like slavery. Um, and I'll get to that a little bit more um, later in the episode. Um, so in this, this episode, we're just basically going to be looking at the first and second Lincoln-Douglas debates. There's a few other documents in this Library of America collection you know, kind of surrounding it, some of the, the speeches Lincoln gave before the Lincoln-Douglas debates, but I'm just going to kind of pass those out because there's so much repetition, right? These are, uh, the, these debates are are essentially stump speeches um, by the candidates, and they cover a lot of the same ground again and again. So I want to kind of highlight what I think is important about each one without getting down to like point by point, just because, you know, the, the way these were, there were seven debates, right, throughout the state of Illinois, so people could see them. And, you know, people would read them in the newspapers and things. But the idea was to get your message to as many people as possible, just like modern political campaigning. Right. And the, a lot of the same issues came up again and again and were debated back and forth. So, um, you know, I'll, instead, I'm, I'm going to focus on kind of what's special about each debate uh, as I see it. Now, the way these were done, uh, as, as you may know, um, there were seven debates uh, in different parts of Illinois, you know, all throughout the state. You know, you, there's actually a map. If you go to the Wikipedia page for it, that shows you where they are. The first was in Ottawa. The second was in Freeport. And they were scattered throughout the state. Um, and there was four of them. So, no, there were six of them. Sorry, seven of them. Seven of them. Um, in four of them, Douglas gave an hour speech, followed by Lincoln giving an hour and a half speech. And then Douglas gave a half hour speech as a rejoinder. And the other three... It was Lincoln who went first, and then Douglas, and then Lincoln went last. It was kind of, if you look at the letters when they were negotiating this, it seems Lincoln thought this, this gave Douglas an advantage because, you know, instead of just being heard once in between, you know, two speeches by, the, by Douglas, you know, he only got three times to, to do that. He saw it was like an advantage to kind of be heard twice, I guess, and to be able to respond. You actually find him in like the second Douglas, Lincoln-Douglas debate. Lincoln's kind of saying, well, I really wish I had time or could have responded to things he said last time, right? But that shows you that people were reading these in, in the newspapers. And after the campaign, these were published, right? That was a big part in Lincoln's rise to national prominence uh, and, and him being chosen as the candidate for the, for the presidency in, in 1860. Now, the issues in these debates, and, and we're going to look at all, we're going to look at all seven over three episodes, so we're going to spend a lot of time on it, but there's not that many issues to actually debate. They, they're essentially debating the Kansas-Nebraska Act, slavery in the territories, Dred Scott, and, and the sectional crisis. And it's all about, basically, these debates are all about slavery and, and the future of slavery in America, especially in the territories, right? That was the issue that they, kind of all their issues were suppressed. They don't mention any other issue, like, that, that would have been discussed back in like the Whig Democratic years, you know, the tariff, the National Bank, the sub-treasury, all this kind of stuff. That That's set aside. Everything's about slavery in the territories, and, and that's pretty much all they talk about throughout it. So there is going to be a lot of rehashing old debates and, and old arguments. Another kind of big issue, I think, especially in the first debate, in fact, it's so important to Doug, it was so important to 
to, to Stephen Douglas that he started with this, and that was the breakdown of that Whig democratic system, and, he, and how he thought that was really bad for, for the country, and then his effort to try to pin that on, on Lincoln. And that's a, a really interesting back and forth in, in at least the first two debates, where it's really about like who's responsible for the Republican platform, and, and Douglas is trying to make Lincoln a key and central in deforming the platform of the Republican Party. And, and Lincoln's kind of shifty on that. I, I do think in, in some of these early debates, I almost feel Douglas had, um, you know, certainly on a moral advantage, but, but kind of in a, in a kind of consistency and a messaging. I, I really felt Lincoln was quite on the defensive in, in, in the first and second debates, responding to a lot of what, what Stephen Douglas is saying instead of actually putting forth a, a, a coherent position um, about like why, like why he opposes slavery in the territories, right? And, you know, of course, Lincoln at this time is, is, is kind of equivocating, right? He's saying, I'm not gonna to touch slavery where it exists in the South. Um, you know, he's open to gradually ending the slavery in the District of Columbia. You know, he's sticking, he's a hardliner on, on, on the idea of the, where should slavery exist in the territories, but on these other issues about slavery, he's really trying to distance himself from, from the abolitionists and from the more radical Republicans. But this just, you know, Stephen Douglas constantly is trying to pull Lincoln to that branch, right? And and that kind of puts Lincoln on the defensive. So uh, I think he gets stronger in the later debates, to be honest. I, I think in the earlier ones, he's... Um, you, I just get the feeling he's constantly responding to what, what Douglas saying, what is saying. And Douglas is able to come in with a very strong message. Maybe it's because he went first and he was kind of able to set the tone, tone of the debate. So anyways, the first... The first of these joint debates, as they're called, and th this is a great idea. I think we should kind of go back to these kinds of style of debates. I, I think you know, instead of you know the, the two minutes back and forth that that we have now, you know, take the time, take the you know, take the two hours, whatever they debate, and then just really just divide up the time, give each an hour, and have them give longer longer um, discussions of the issues. I, I think that'd be useful. I, I don't think this kind of soundbite gotcha kind of uh, politicking we have today is that that useful and certainly they're capable of doing that they do give stump speeches and maybe that's what would happen if we went that there wouldn't be at the back and forth each candidate would just give their their standard stump speech but i don't, I don't know I, I think there there's there's something here. also i think what was nice about this is it's it was an extended format right it was seven debates in different places but there was a continuity between them they were going back to previous debates discussing issues brought up in earlier debates moving on and they kind of the, the debates evolve in very organic and interesting ways i think that's one reason they're so they're so memorable um of course the historical significance of these debates was the evolution ev evolution of, of of lincoln to national prominence and, and popularity right because the even though he loses the senate run right remember these days senate seat, senate seats were chosen by the state legislatures Right. So Lincoln was actually running, not a pop for a popular campaign, but running to get support of the state legislatures. Right now, there's a connection to the popular um, vote, because like, for instance, in this election, you know, pro Lincoln candidates got the majority of the votes in Illinois. Right. But but uh, Stephen Douglas was still elected Senate. So senator. You know, I, someone would have to do a full analysis of to, to what, to how often were the senators to Congress or to the yeah to the U.S. Congress, you know, really reflecting the majority will in the states based on that that state legislative elections, right? Right. It's the same problem with winner take all elections all around, right? Because if if you win ninety percent of the vote in your district, you, you get one seat. The guy this district over wins fifty one percent, he gets the seat, right? Um, if you were to add the populations up, you, one would be clearly dominant, right? But it's one one each in, in, in power in, in, in Congress. That's the district system that the U.S. had and instead of a proportional system. And that had, does create these situations, you know, at, you know, much like in the last um, presidential election in the U.S., right, where Trump got a, did not get a majority of the votes, but got most electoral votes, right? So um, that's complicated by the, the, the nature of the Electoral College, too. Uh, but anyways, moving on to these debates. Uh, the first Lincoln-Douglas debate was in Ottawa, Illinois. Ottawa is a little bit southwest of Chicago. It's uh, the closest to Chicago of any of these, these debates were. It was August 21st, 1858. And of course, uh, the last debate 
let me look up look up when it was October 15th 1858 so it's only like a, a two and a half three month really two month really a two month period uh, where these debates took took place all throughout the state and they traveled together right the, and 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 met they had their own kind of campaign in their own side but they always came together to really be face to face for these these debates so I think it's really interesting way of, of, of doing this kind of campaigning oh wait I, I wanted to say a little bit more about the publication of these and, and the kind of the format that we get these in and and where I listen to these debates. Um, so first, these these were in printed in newspapers, right? So for instance, the Ottawa, the first debate, the Douglas speeches were printed in the Chicago Times and Lincoln's was in the Press and Tribune. And the way they were transcribed, I don't know if it's 100% accurate because um, these were, you know, they weren't reading from, I don't know what kind of notes they had, but they don't read like they were like speeches. They There is... Um, back and forth there's the audience participation that's the coolest thing about these is you actually get the audience participation uh, when you had like opponents of uh, or supporters of, of Douglas would cheer on Douglas or Lincoln supporters would kind of shout out things kind of heckle them and then there's responses by these people sometimes it's frustrated where they're saying like we need to you know wasting my time by shouting out others times you know Lincoln would respond with a joke when someone you know kind of tried to insult him or, or egg him on so it's really it's really nice how that's all included in these newspaper accounts and you get the sense that these debates were, were a form of entertainment for the people who who went there and you know politics I think still has that characteristic of being a bit of entertainment right the, my, my parents for instance they watch you know, late night TV all the time, and they they just like obsessed with the coverage of, of Trump, and I, I don't know why they're obsessed with him because they don't like him very much. But you know, he's not going to go anywhere for a couple years at the time of this recording, and I tell them, you know, you got to stop watching. But I realize that for them, it's kind of an entertainment, right? It's 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 fun for them, and they they kind of enjoy it. So, anyways, that's it's a nice thing about how these and, and this collection include you know has that those editions of those speeches so you get that back and forth um, now where I couldn't find an audiobook version of the Lincoln Douglas debates but what I did find and that's still on the c-span website is c-span ran or I think did did they put it I'm not sure if they put it together or if they just recorded them uh, a reenactment of the Lincoln Douglas the complete Lincoln Douglas, Douglas debates now each debate had different actors portraying both Lincoln and and Douglas some of them did more of an effort to kind of look the part. Others just tried to um, act in, in various ways. And they're, they're quite interesting. In fact, you even have the audience participated in some of these reenactments, right where as recorded in the, in the speech itself, as they were recorded in the newspapers. So um, you can go to C-SPAN and kind of search. They're, they were done in like 1994, so they're, they're over 20 years old. But you can go and find them and, and, and listen to the speeches. And they're, they're edited a little bit. You know, there's a few, for instance, in the first Lincoln-Douglas debate, Douglas used the term black Republicans all the time. That's edited out. I'm not sure why, um, even though the N-word is not in that same, same debate when Douglas used the N-word. Um, so I don't know. There were some editorial decisions made or the actors just kind of, you know, changed things as they went along. But mostly it's just minor terms or, or, or sentences are cut off, but it, you get basically the bulk of it. So they're a little bit shorter. I don't know if that's because these modern actors are speaking at a faster rate than Lincoln and Douglas actually would at the time, or, you know, they didn't have microphones back then, so they had to speak differently. I don't really know enough about how speeches were given in those days so the whole crowd could hear. I'm sure they were trained in, in, in basically kind of shouting. I heard that somewhere, actually, that uh, speeches back, even back to the Greek and Roman days were you actually had to be trained sort of like an opera singer how to project your voice. So it was a kind of a, a disciplined type of screaming or yelling almost. But if you could train yourself to yell in such a way that it didn't sound like yelling. And uh, that's what you had to do in the days before for microphones and all that. That may have slowed down the speeches because the ones I watched, it took them about two hours to do what took Lincoln and Douglas, you know, what, three hours, right? To, it would have been an hour and a half each. Uh, so, anyways, the actual events would have been longer though because there were introductions to both the the speakers and there was, um, you know, the, the transitions and all that. So, anyways, that's that's how I uh, read and 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 ended up watching these these debates. So, um, what do we got here? Um, the first debate. Well, Douglas starts out. Um, 
basically talking about the history of, of political parties in America. And, and he talks about, he basically is trying to make the case that the Republican Party was a destructive force in American politics. And the way this argument goes is that prior to the Republican Party, you had two national political parties. You had the Whigs and the Democrats, and they debated various issues. But Whigs got votes north and south. Democrats got votes north and south. And they both could kind of appeal to the nation. And they also agreed on compromise, right? So his evidence of this is, he keeps coming back to, was the Compromise of 1850, right? Now, if anyone who studied the history of the Compromise of 1850 knows that it was, there was a small group of compromisers who passed different laws with very sectional interest, pretty much, right? So the compromisers worked with the pro-slavery um, Congress people to get the pro-slavery stuff passed. They worked with uh, anti or free soil can, uh, representatives to get the free soil parts of, of it passed. So it was less of a compromise than than it's made out to here be by Douglas. But Douglas still can say like, Whigs and Democrats got together and worked on this, right? Across um, the parties and parties, the parties were national, right? But what's changed is that Republican party has come in and they're a sectional party. And he kept saying an abolitionizing party, right? So he really wants to pin, and he really wanted, he really tried very hard to pin this concept of a Republican party being an abolitionist party on Lincoln himself, right? So he talks about the, the, the platform of the Republican party. He actually reads the platform early on in the first debate and saying like, this was decided here in, in Illinois and this platform is, you know, therefore, you know, Lincoln's responsibility, right? Now there's, you read it now, it doesn't seem that controversial, but at the time it was controversial from at least the Democrats' point of view, because it really did directly say we're going to limit slavery in the territories, right, directly. So that's his strategy in the first speech he gives, this first this hour-long speech that he, he gave. Um, then he goes on after doing that to defending the Kansas-Nebraska Act um, directly. And that's going to be the other issue kind of really at the heart of all of these debates is, is the Kansas-Nebraska Act. I talked about in the last episode, we sort of know Lincoln's opposition to it because, you know, he's opposed to it because it breaks down the Missouri Compromise, right? And of course, for all the talk of, of the Compromise of 1850, Lincoln always goes back to the Missouri Compromise as the, as the, comp, the best compromise, right? The one that should be preserved at all, at all costs. But he goes on to defend the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and obviously his defense is popular sovereignty. I let the people decide for themselves what's the best institution in their, in their state. And he makes the case that basically everyone agrees on this principle of popular sovereignty. It sounds nice, of course, right? Let the people decide, except for the abolitionists. So the, he's, again, trying to pin abolitionism on the Republican Party to try to, to taint it in a way. Um, now, a lot of this first part of the speech is actually quite personal toward, towards Lincoln. He, he looks back to the election of 1854 when the Republican Party first ran for, for statewide office and the like the Shields-Trumbull election. If you remember, Lincoln actually, there was like two candidates that were kind of free soil candidates in that election, right? There was the Trumbull and there was Lincoln. Lincoln got more votes, but had to kind of pass, had to give his votes to Trumbull to ensure that uh, an anti-free soil candidate can get that, that Senate seat, right? That was the first time he tried to run for Senate and he, he failed in that. And Douglas really seems to enjoy bringing this up and, and kind of uh, making him try to feel bad, at, to, to be honest, about that, that previous failure of his. But he kind of starts saying there's a conspiracy between Lincoln and Trumbull, these two radical um, free soil candidates trying to kind of tr destroy the Whig Party, destroy the Democratic Party in Illinois. That's, that's the heart of him, of his attitude towards Lincoln's place in this history is Lincoln's part of a conspiracy of a small number of people to abolitionize the Whig Party and abolitionize the Democratic Party and break up those parties and, and transform them into really a, into kind of a singular sectional party dominating Illinois. And he goes on a lot of detail about that. Now, he uses the term Black Republican Party all the time, right? And this is another, just another way, another rhetorical tool that Douglas used to try to paint Lincoln as Lincoln and the Republican Party as abolitionist, which, which it wasn't at the time. There were abolitionists in the Republican Party, but, you know, a lot of abolitionists 
didn't believe in voting, right? Like uh, Garrison, I, as I recall, didn't didn't even believe that, that you, you should vote because the Constitution was essentially a pact with the devil. So it's obviously you know unfair of, of Douglas to do it, but it's it's it, it kind of works politically here to to try to. You know, it always happens, right? You connect the candidate you know, like to the worst element or the most radical elements or the the most uh, or the mainstream elements in one's party, right? Like they used to do with the Democrats. You know, they try to the Republicans would try to tag the Democrats as with the you know environmental lobby or something, right? And then of course the the candidates they have to separate themselves from that. Hopefully, those days are over, but you know, probably not. It's a, it's it's an effective tool that's been used throughout um, history. Um, so he goes through this 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 Republican platform really and and focuses and, and kind of accuses this really tries to make it the the, the creation of Lincoln. Um, in contrast, though, then you got Douglas saying, "I've consistently been national. I've consistently have have principles." And he also says that Lincoln, depending on where he goes, is going to give different speeches, right? And I don't really see that reading these Lincoln speeches. I don't know if it's if there's any truth to it, but. Basically, Douglas was saying, like, when Lincoln goes to some audiences, he'll be more abolitionist. When he goes to other audiences, he'll be less so. And he's kind of changing his message to different audiences. But I, Stephen Douglas, am consistently, entirely in my principles. Um, after this, he goes on to his relationship with, with Lincoln, you know, their times together in Illinois politics when they first met. But he really targets Lincoln's time in the House of Representatives as really disqualifying for the Senate, mostly because he, his support for things like the Wilmot Proviso and his opposition to the Mexican War, basically painting him as uh, against the troops, right? He, was, he didn't support the troops during the war. That's the, uh, the way he, he kind of tries to discredit Lincoln. Lincoln's going to respond to this and say, well, I always voted to support the troops. I just opposed the war, but I supported the troops, right? Um, he also targets... The Republicans, and this time it's not Lincoln directly, but Trumbull for trying to pass a law that would have repudiated Illinois' debts. That's, that's one of the few examples where we get a different issue that's not related to slavery being discussed here. Um, now, he gets kind of targets Lincoln directly after this with uh, the House Divided speech. And this is something that Douglas will come back to a lot in the debates is the House Divided speech because Lincoln says a House Divided cannot stand, right? And Douglas replies to this, well, We've been divided since the origin, since the founding, since the Constitution. We've had slave states and free states. And are you saying the founders were wrong? Are you saying the founders created a, a house with a bad foundation? Are, you know, and so by, and it's kind of interesting because Lincoln's going to always go back to the Declaration of Independence. He, he goes back to the founders too, saying that the Declaration of Independence has all men are created equal. And that includes black people, right? That's the root of his opposition to slavery. And Douglas is able to go back to the founders and say, well, they created a constitution that lasted for, for 80 years. And it's been on the principle of local, just local states deciding if they want slavery or not, right? The principle of popular sovereignty. So that's, that's his argument. But the House Divided Speech, in Douglas's view, is a criticism of the founder system. And that's how he uses it. And he makes one criticism here of... of the Lincoln Douglas or of the House divided speech same because you know Lincoln said we're not going to remain permanently half slave half free we're going to have a universal system and Douglas says well if we had done that back like in 1778 or something or in 1780 like whenever the constitution was written right then the, what would that universality would have been well they would have been the universality of slaveholding right there was more slave states they had a greater population they would have just passed a law saying slavery is legal everywhere. But instead, in their wisdom, the founders said, let each local state decide for itself, which allowed Massachusetts, Vermont, and these states to, to abolish slavery in their own way, right? New York and Pennsylvania would do it later. Some states would, would not. But, you know, by, you know, it's only, he's, basically the criticism here is you're only saying universal uh, now at a time when, when there are more free states. Now, Lincoln, in terms of policy, consistently said, well, I'm not going to touch slavery where it exists, right? And, you know, that's a long, you know, it depends if you look at the, the House Divided speech, it seems 
he's not it's not saying i'm going to abolish slavery if i can in the south it's just saying that this is an unsustainable situation and i talked about it i think it was in the last episode when i talked about the house divided speech that i think this house divided is a very recent thing that was my reading of it he lincoln saw this as a recent thing it, he wasn't saying the house was always divided it was recently divided with the breakdown of the missouri compromise the dred scott decision and that that things have changed since the founders i, I don't think he really believed that the founders created a divided house now it's at the end of his first speech that that douglas gets really really nasty um he basically starts saying Lincoln supports black rights. Um, he supports citizenship for black people. He says, like, you oppose Dred Scott? Well, Dred Scott decision says black people can't be citizens, right? So you think black should be citizens? Um, he uses terms like white government to basically say that the, the founders wanted a white government. Black people have no place in, in our republic. Um, he does say blacks should have rights, um, some rights, not no rights altogether, but he says rights that have to be based on two things. He says, one, the public good, and one, the second, is society. And he says that can only be decided at the local level, right? Um, now, at the end, he kind of says, well, if we stay strong, we stay united, we're going to have a great future. That's the flag waving at the end of his, his speech. Um, but the end of the first debate, or the first speech of the first debate, Douglas's opening salvo, it really gets really nasty at the end. And if you read the last few pages of that first response, you just see how, you know, how racially tainted these debates were, right? Maybe we don't always think about that, but racial languages throughout all of these debates is quite on the surface um, a lot. And even Lincoln uses this from time to time. You know, people who have tried to point out or tried to argue that Lincoln was, was kind of a moderate on, on slavery and kind of wishy-washy at times and you know, able to use racist language himself, can look to these speeches and see that as well. I mean, it's, he's not as nasty as Douglas is um, here, but there are, there are ways we can criticize him, as we'll see going forward. So that's the first um, hour of that debate. And then we get Lincoln's response, which is about an hour and a half. And a lot of it is literally a response. He's, he's very much on the defensive, right? Now, he's able to be a little bit humorous about it and jokey from time to time and self-deprecating, and it's kind of fun to read. But there's a lot of, of just responding to, to Douglas's claims rather than making a proactive argument. Now, it doesn't take him, he, he doesn't take, he, he doesn't, well, he starts out saying, well, that stuff about my role in kind of crafting the Republican platform, that's not, that wasn't me. It's not some kind of conspiracy with me and Trumbull to, to kind of overturn the Whig Party in, in Illinois. But he, it doesn't take him long to get to the, the question of social equality because this, I don't know if it's because he saw this as a, maybe a more serious threat to him, but he, you know, he addresses it quite early in his response. He says, I don't want to read in, at any greater length, but this is the true complexion of all I have said in regard to the institution of slavery and the black race. That's the whole of it. And if anything that argues me into his idea of perfect social or political equality with the Negro is but a specious and fantastic arrangement of words by which a man can prove a horse chestnut to be a chestnut horse. I will say here while on the subject that I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so, but I have no purpose to introduce political and social equality between white and black races. There is a physical difference between the two, which in my judgment will forever prohibit them living together upon a footing of perfect equality, insomuch as it becomes necessary that there must be a difference, I, as well as Judge Douglas, am in favor of the race to which I belong, having the superior position. And he goes on with this, right? But he does say, you know, but the Declaration of Independence doesn't seem to separate out. It doesn't seem to be just for white people. He said, I hold that notwithstanding all this, there is no reason in the world why the Negro is not entitled to all the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I hold that he is as much entitled to these as the white man. End quote. So um, unfortunately, he does kind of backpedal on social moral equality but you know he does say that that rights in the declaration of independence exist you know exist to them now i don't know how you can really jive those two positions they seem contradictory right because if you take the declaration of independence you know all people endowed with creators with life liberty and pursuit of happiness and then say well there's not equality or there's you know i'm still going to support my race over another race 
Um, at some point here, he even makes a shout out to colonization, saying, I, "If it was up to me, I would free the slaves and send them off to Liberia." But I don't know if that's that's really possible. Um, so, um, what else does he say here that's important? Again, he's he's a lot of this is just responding to to Douglas. Um, the founders' view on slavery's expansion—that's a big one, right? So that's that's a big contradiction. Did the founders support something like popular sovereignty, right? For Douglas, they did, because they let, you know, Mississippi or Missouri or, the, or well, I guess Missouri is a bad example, but they let you know Virginia decide if they want slavery or not, right? They didn't interfere with it. There wasn't an effort to universalize these institutions, right? But what, you know, Lincoln's response is no. If you actually look at what the founders did very early on, they actually did pass laws that limited slavery's expansion into the territory. That was the Northwest Territory. The law organizing the, the Northwest Territories forbade slavery there. And so his belief is that the founders wanted slavery to basically be limited and, and over a period of time abolished. He writes, I have said and I believe we shall have no peace upon the question until the opponents of slavery arrest the further spread of it and place it in a place in where the public mind shall rest on the belief that it is in the course of its ultimate exist extinction. Or on the other hand, that its advocates will push it forward until it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Now that's just the house divided speech again. He goes on. Now I believe that we could arrest the spread and place it where Washington and Jefferson and Madison placed it. It would be in the course of ultimate extinction. The public mind would, as for 80 years past, believe that it was on the course of ultimate extinction. End quote. So the argument is that what the founders wanted is to accept slavery as a necessary evil now, but to set the groundwork for its abolition, basically by limiting it in, into, the, into the West. He's going to go on to this and more in the other debates and in the Cooper Union speech. Um, now, where he starts to make a kind of a, a real challenge to Douglas and maybe something more proactive is when he, he establishes this idea that there's a conspiracy to make slavery universal. And the components of this are the Dred Scott decision and, and, as, and then the Kansas-Nebraska. These two things popular sovereignty for the front for the frontier and then the Dred Scott's decision which said you can't limit what property human or otherwise that people bring into into the territories right all you need then the groundwork's laid he said for a follow-up Supreme Court decision that says there's no limit on where you can bring slaves anywhere so nothing would stop them people from bringing their slaves into into Illinois right and setting up plantation having to work there Right. So that is we're, we're that close, Lincoln's saying. Right. And he thinks it's a conspiracy. He thinks it's not the will of the American people to do that. So he spends a lot of time here on Dred Scott. So much time on Dred Scott that one of the people from the audience shouts out, like, talk about something other than Dred Scott. And, and Lincoln kind of replies, well, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Because then, you know, because I'm winning this 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 debate. Um, he, he also talks about the Lecompton Constitution and says, you know, well, you say you're going to support popular sovereignty. Well, what about the Lecompton Constitution? Do you support that? And if you support that, essentially you're supporting slavery's expansion. Now, in all fairness, Douglas opposed the Lecompton Constitution. That's um, a noble thing where he broke with the Democratic Party in his opposition to it. But this this Lincoln is able to use to to kind of challenge him on what does popular sovereignty even mean, right? You know, just because the Constitution is written doesn't mean it's representative of the people's will, right? And that was the issue with the Lecompton Constitution, right? It was a pro-slavery constitution written in 1857 that eventually was rejected as not essentially being the will of the majority. Um, but it was it was kind of something pushed forward by the pro-slavery um, settlers in Kansas and then supported by the National Democratic Party largely. So... Um, this what Lincoln's trying to do here is just show how fuzzy this concept of popular sovereignty is um, and, and how it's sometimes hard to determine exactly what is that. So um, he thinks instead we should lead on like the basic values of the founders, which was to limit the spread of slavery up into the West. Um, and yeah, he kind of concludes his response to Douglas saying, you know, what will make slavery eventually national, and that will be just a second, a new Dred Scott decision is all it will take to, to do that. Um, and now Douglas's response, the, the half hour response he gives, I, there's not too much more to add uh, to this debate, uh, what he says there, except I just got the sense that he's really trying to paint Lincoln as a chaos agent, you know, and the Republican Party in general is a bit of a chaos agent. 
and, and a disruptive force in Illinois politics and in national politics. Really making Lincoln central in the formation of that really radical Republican Party platform that was going to break, destroy the, destroy the Union. Um, in fact, Lincoln intervened and in, interrupted a lot in, in this, you know, kind of breaking the rules of the debate as Douglas was talking. You know, several times he stepped in and, and kind of called him out on, on things. But it, it, he really seemed to have gotten under Lincoln's skin in this, this reply. So it's fun to read here. Um, but yeah, I think that's the heart of what he's trying to say is really as always pinning the most radical positions within the Republican party on Lincoln, right? The old political tactic, right? Of, of, of basically taking the worst or the most radical or the most problematic elements in a party, the most non-mainstream elements, maybe and then like pinning that to the candidate you don't like. You know, just, and of course, you know, if you're trying to build a party, right, you support many, you try to get support from many different interest groups, right? Some of whom may be outside the mainstream, right? So you, to the degree you support them, like, you, you, you kind of get tainted by that, and so but you can be targeted. It's just one of the. It's just a feature of of these national broad coalition political parties that 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 we have in the U.S. So, anyways, it's fun to read uh, the Ottawa debate. Um, next up, uh, we got the Freeport debate. Um, these should go a little bit quicker from now on because so many of these debates get get rehashed. Um, but this is an important debate um, because it's. You know the kind of the free port kind of principle is that that puts forth by Douglas is, is really going to be key in this campaign and in, in the rest of the sectional debate. Um, this debate begins with Lincoln basically responding to like a series a questionnaire of sorts. I, I don't know quite when this was shared, but it seems he got a he got a, a series of there were questions printed by Douglas in the Chicago Tribune, and uh, basically questions I want Lincoln to answer right and. He answers them. You know, there are things on is, do you want to repeal the fugitive slave law? Lincoln replies, no, that's not my position. Um, do you stand pledged against the admission of any more slave states to the Union? Um, and the next issue was the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia. And then the prohibition of the slave trade between the states. Uh, I desire to know whether he stands pledged in pro prohibiting slavery in all the territory of the United States. Uh, there he he does say yes, I, I did. Now there's a there's a series of these questions that that Douglas is trying to pin down answers to Lincoln because part of Douglas's critique of Lincoln was that he's he's wishy washy, right? He's a flip flopper depending on who he's talking to, right? So by using the press to force Lincoln to come down on these issues. It would make it impossible for him to then like switch his position. I'm not sure he's doing that. I, I think that's something that Douglas was pushing beyond the, the evidence. But the argument being is that he's he's more abolitionist in some, some parts of the state and less so in other parts of the state. So he really wanted to get his answers to it. And that's how he just Lincoln just comes out and says, okay, I'm going to answer these one after another. And so basically he goes through what the, he calls it these interrogatories um, and the six of them and and basically answers them and fairly honestly based on his positions that he's not going to interfere with slavery where it is he'd like to see the gradual emancipation ending of slavery in the district of columbia uh, he doesn't want slavery in the territories uh, he would accept states to enter in on principles that they they agree to of course combined with the banning of slavery in the territories you, you know you, you wouldn't get slaveholders voting pro-slave slave constitutions in that situation. So I, I think he's he's able to have his both ways here. Uh, say, I'll accept any state in good faith that, that applies or any territory that wants to apply for statehood, I'd accept that. But at the same time, by limiting slavery's expansion of the territory, it's very unlikely that those states would, would vote to be pro-slavery because most of the people living there would not have, have slaves. No one, would, I guess, would have slaves. So that's, that's how this Freeport debate, which took place on August 27th, 1857, um, Freeport was uh, Freeport was in the far north, right in the right near the Wisconsin border. Now, and that's why I also because this begins with him answering Douglas' questions again. I I do feel that you know Lincoln once again, even though he has the first voice in this debate, he starts out by again responding to Douglas's questions. I don't know if that was the right strategy or, or not to debate. I I'd really let an expert comment on that but it seems to me he's, he's just puts himself in a position to be responding to Douglas when he didn't have to be um, 
kind of walks right into the trap, I guess. But uh, maybe it worked out for him. Uh, in in you know nibbing this criticism of Lincoln in the bud, right? This criticism that he's wishy-washy. So I don't know, but he does follow this up with his own questions for for Douglas, and I'll just read them for you because they're they're quite good ones. Because now Lincoln's in a position to finally try to nail Douglas down on um, politically unpopular positions. Um, um, so first, what if Kansas proposes a constitution before having the re required number of people? It's 93,000, right? Because Congress could, of course, decide when to accept a, a state constitution uh, from, from, a, uh, from a territory and admit them as a state. The English bill, which was the bill for the Congress passed to manage how Kansas would be brought in as a state, required 93,000, right? The Compton, the Compton Constitution, you know, was preemptive created by slaveholders. So this is a Buffalo Compton Constitution. Next, can the people of a territory of the United States or a territory of the United States in any lawful way against the wishes of any citizen of the United States exclude slavery from its limits prior to the formation of a state constitution? So this is getting to the question of Dred Scott and this is getting to the issue of, you know, what if, I mean, you'd say popular sovereignty. So fine, um, popular sovereignty. Can the people say, via popular sovereignty, via our local laws, we live in this territory, we should manage it, you know, not allow slavery in, right? Of course, under Dred Scott, you can't. There's no, you can't, the Congress can't limit people's property in the territories. That includes slaves. Lincoln's saying, well, how's that popular sovereignty? What if the people 90% say they don't want slavery in any way in the territory, right? Stephen Douglas says, would, I guess, say they have, they'll, when they write their constitution, they'll ban it, right? But he's kind of setting up a contradiction between popular sovereignty and the Dred Scott decision, I think is what he's doing there. Question three, if the Supreme Court of the United States shall decide that states cannot exclude slavery from their limits, are you in favor of acquiescing in, adopting and following such decision as a rule of political action? And this is again saying, what if there's a second Dred Scott, a follow-up decision that says, not only can Congress not prohibit the slavery in the territories and, and, and prohibit people's bringing slaves in, you know, they can't, states can't prevent people from bringing in their property. And, and he, so he's trying to pin Douglas down on that. And then finally, are you in favor of acquiring additional territory in disregard of how such acquisitions may affect the nation on the slavery question? And this is saying like, what, you know, are you going to consider the national consequences of bringing in Kansas as a slave state, for instance? Um, you know, that there's a larger kind of the necessities, uh, you know, are you going to deepen this crisis or are, is that going to be a consideration when you decide to vote on a state's admission? It's a really good question. It's, um, and we'll see how Douglas sort of replies to them. But I think the whole heart of the second half of, of Lincoln's opening speech in the second debate, the Freeport debate, is to try to set up this contradiction between popular sovereignty and Dred Scott. And I, I think he's quite good at it. I think it, it's quite effective. Now, when Douglas replies, he, he first has to respond to these four questions that, that Lincoln gave in his opening comments. And, and the most important of these is really, because it, it really is the heart of what Lincoln was trying to pin on Douglas in the second, the Freeport debate, was you know, this contradiction between Dred Scott and popular sovereignty. You know, if, because you can't have it both ways is, is essentially Lincoln's point of view. Like the Supreme Court is saying, basically there is no popular sovereignty because it's a, a territory can't ban slavery or prevent slavery um, in, its, in its boundaries, right? The territory is governed by Congress and the Supreme Court had made this decision that slavery, slaves can be brought in. So doesn't that contradict this idea, this value you have a popular sovereignty, right? And so this is what the free point, the free, doctrine, what's been called the Freeport Doctrine by Douglas, 
you know, comes from. It comes from this debate. And essentially what Douglas said is essentially, yes, uh, people essentially, yes, the people of a territory can restrict slavery. They can't really say to a slaveholder, you can't own a slave, but they can refuse to pass slave codes. They can refuse to pass, um, they can refuse to maybe enforce, you know, laws that would protect and shore up slavery. They can make it very uncomfortable. They can make slavery a very unstable or, or unpromising system, right? They could tax slavery. I don't know. They, they could do various things that would make it essentially impossible for slavery to exist in the territory. So that's his pirouette on this issue is essentially to the degree that territory territorial governments can make laws. They can make laws that are more or less anti-slavery if, if they want. Now, this, of course, is something that's going to piss off the, the Southern Democrats, the Democrat, the parts of the Democratic Party that are, that are more pro-slavery. Here's what he said. Uh, it matters not what way the Supreme Court may hereafter decide as to the abstract question whether slavery may or may not go into a territory under the Constitution. The people have the lawful means to introduce it or exclude it as they please. For the reason that slavery cannot exist today or an hour anywhere unless it is supported by local police regulations. Those police regulations can only be established by the local legislature. And if these people are opposed to slavery, they will elect representatives to the body that will be unfriendly legislation, who will un be unfriendly legislation, effectively prevent the introduction of it in the midst. If on the contrary, they are for it, their legislation will favor its extension." End quote. So here's how he's, he, this is his effort to reconcile uh, Dred Scott and and popular sovereignty, basically saying popular sovereignty in the actual governance of, of, the, of the territory matters more than, than what the Supreme Court says. The Supreme Court made a broad principle about property rights and slavery in the territory, but really slavery isn't a place because of its institutions and its local laws and, and slave codes, essentially, right? The, the police regulations, as he said. So that's, um, that's where it is. Um, um, he does, though... Um, still, though, challenge Lincoln, he kind of tries to turn it back around to this question of the danger of giving Congress the power to enact or refuse slavery in, in the territories or nationally, right? Is He just thinks that this kind of goes back to that earlier argument he made when he said, well, if we would have decided this in 18, 1780 as one system for the whole country, it would have been slavery, clearly, right? Most of the early presidents were slaveholders. Only, only Adams wasn't. Uh, they were they were all slaveholders of most of the states. Most of the population was in slaveholding states. So if it would have been decided to be a national issue by Congress, it would have been pro-slavery probably. Um, the, that's the danger of giving Congress. You know, for now you might have you know, might add push for no slavery in the territories, but if you give Congress that power to legislate instead of the people locally, they could maybe say you know the Utah Territory or you know Montana or the Dakotas could be you know should you know, be slavery despite the will of the local people, right? So that's, he's just basically saying this is a protective against kind of a, a, a Congress that's just going to make whatever decision based on the powers in Washington. So anyways, in addition to this uh, kind of response, this Freeport Doctrine, he, he also comes back to the House Divided speech, um, basically forcing the question that if, if the, you know, we can't remain, you know, the thesis that you can't remain half slave, half free, Eventually, that's going to be resolved in one way. Well, what way is it going to be resolved, right? Are you going to vote then to restrict if, if, if you know, st new states to come in? Are you going to uh, legislate for the territories? Or, you know, what is that actually going to mean in terms of policy, right? So as you're trying to pin, say, what, is, what, is the, what do you actually mean by the House Divided Speech in terms of how you're going to vote in, in Congress, right? Which, um, you know, it's a, it was a good question at the time, I think. Now he says, in contrast, my principles are eternal and, and never wavering. He says, I've stood by my principles in fair weather and in foul and in sunshine and in rain, and I've defended the great principles of self-government here among you when northern sentiment ran in a torrent against me, and I've defended the same principles when southern sentiment came down like an avalanche upon me, end quote. I wonder if there if he's talking about his opposition to the Lecompton Constitution. But anyways, that's the... That's the heart of the second debate, um, and I think it's a really important one because it's it's probably some of the best 
one of the best questions Lincoln comes to in this debate where he's you know, really targeting that is just these two, uh, the two, well, I think the two great villains of the free soil movement, right? Kansas, Nebraska Act, the popular sovereignty stuff and the Dred Scott decision, you know, that there is a bit of a contradiction in them in that it seems to err on the side of pro-slavery sentiment, right? It seems all things being equal, popular, you know, it's basically, it's a ranking, right? Dred Scott seems uh, to basically make all the territories slavery places, at least as long as they're territories until they decide on a, on a, on a vote. On a, on a constitution, you know, popular sovereignty, you know, the way Douglas frames it is like each local locality can decide, but can they really? They really can't, right? Because Dred Scott doesn't really give them that opportunity. And the history of Kansas shows that, right? Once you allow people to bring in their slaves, people would bring in their slaves in huge numbers, right? And and that's the cause of the bleeding Kansas problem and the, and the, and the fighting over the, the admission of Kansas. Eventually, it's a free state, but, you know, it was a, it was a you know, it wasn't always guaranteed to be that way, right? The Lecompton Constitution proved that there was a powerful, powerful force pushing um, for that. And and I think under the surface of all this is to what degree is popular sovereignty even meaningful when when you have such powerful interests pushing in, in these states? And that, that's just a problem of democracy overall, I suppose. So anyways, that's, um, that's the... The first and second uh, Lincoln Douglas debates. That's all I'm going to say about them. Um, they're they're use, they're good to read. Um, I think at least to read a few of these debates. I think as a useful exercise. I think they're fun to watch too. They're you know they're the acting is a bit all you know it's not consistent throughout them all, but um, it's it's interesting that they did that. And I think you know they reenact these from time to time um, in other places. But they were on C-SPAN about 20 years ago. Um, but they're all there for you, basically in unabridged form. Um, just a few editorial changes. And if you don't want to sit there and read the debates, you can go there to C-SPAN and, and watch those. Because um, I couldn't find an audiobook version of them. I found an audiobook of Lincoln's speeches on LibriVox, but you know, I think some of these Lincoln-Douglas debates are in there, but not all of them, and, and not the Douglas stuff. So anyways, uh, we will, uh, in the next episode, I'll look at debates three and four there will be the ones in jonesboro and charleston um and so that'll be the next episode those were in september on september 15th and then september 18th so they're only um three four days apart um so in the meantime let me know what you think is there anything major concepts or ideas in the first two lincoln douglas debates that i skipped off or misinterpreted or or, or, or should have said more about please let me know your thoughts and and i'll try to get back to you and and and, and reply to your your thoughts. You can leave a comment below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So thanks as always for listening, and I look forward to coming back shortly and talking about the, the third and fourth of the, of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and especially to focus on the topics that are introduced, not just rehash these old same issues. That's part of the problem of talking about a series of debates like this, but each of these debates does have its kind of unique um, touch points, and, and I'll try to emphasize what, what, what those are. Like in the first one, it was really um, like the Republican, the Republican Party, and and racial equality, and the second is really this contradiction between Dred Scott and popular sovereignty, and where, where would you know this argument? Where would Douglas line up when given a choice of these two principles, and how does he kind of dance around this contradiction? So three and four also have their have their key points, and I'll, I'll highlight what those are. So again, thanks. I'll, I'll see you next time.